Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm your host, Colin Ellis, and on today's bonus episode, we're talking with actress and documentary filmmaker Miriam Zuri about her debut film, Born in Evan. The title comes from her own life related to the circumstances of her birth in Iran's notorious political prison. I know two or three things about my childhood. My mom and I were from Iran, but we were living alone in Germany. I also had a father, but back then, I didn't know why he was away from us. Today, I'm 35 years old, and I know my father couldn't be with us because he was trapped in a political prison called Evin. I also know that I was born in that prison. But that's basically everything I know. My mom and I get along very well. But we just can't talk about the past. You may have noticed that Iran has been in the news a lot recently, so we wanted to talk to Miriam about her experience making a film that explores a side of the Iranian regime that is more personal and introspective. Zuri joined us on the line from Berlin, Germany, and we talked about what happened when people spoke out, the stories of the young women she met who were on similar journeys, and why she felt she had to include herself in the story. Here's our conversation with Miriam Zuri. Miriam Zuri, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I want to start from the beginning. What sparked this exploration of your family's history? So the very first idea goes back to when I found out that there were other children that were born in Evin as well, because I think I always um, had the idea that I was probably the only one. It was so weird. I didn't ever never had met anyone who was born in prison so it was something very abstract to me but then I heard about another woman um, who had written a fictional novel about about that and someone had contacted me and asked asked me if that was me and that was the first time I heard that there were other children and I I realized that that was um, yeah that this wasn't that this birth of mine was not so personal but part of a larger context of um, political prisoners and the, their children and what had happened to them and how they spread all over the world. So this thought started out forming in my head and at first I didn't want to be part of the film. I had found other children and I had contacted one and I wanted to do a film about them. And then slowly I realized that that I couldn't hide behind um, the stories of the others because the movie is dealing with the questions of denial and overcoming somehow the strategies of denial. And I realized that I, myself, and my family, we somehow needed to serve um, our, or yeah, serve maybe a larger story or share our story in order to reveal something that was much larger and more collective. Well, let's talk a bit about your family um, for a bit. Can you just tell us a bit about your parents and, and who they were before the revolution in 1979? Um, I mean, they were very, they were still 
young people. My mother was very young. When she had me, she was 18. So she was just a student that was already very rebellious and engaged and politically active in her in her school in Iran. And my father was studying during the revolution. Um, he was not, not in Iran himself. He was in, in the United States uh, where he was studying. And um, yeah, and he was very engaged there as well. And they were fighting the Shah or they believed that the this installed monarchy um, was something that was unjust, unjust and that needed to be yeah, fought. And so they were wanted to have a more just and democratic society. So this is how their political engagement started. And that's how they met and eventually married and, and had me. So the monarchy falls and uh, instead of, I guess, a, a social democracy flourishing, uh, an Islamic republic uh, uh, comes to power and pick up the story from there. What happens to your parents after the downfall of the, of the monarchy? I mean, the, the, the revolution was hijacked. There were so many different groups. Um, uh, there were a huge range of different groups that were engaged back then. Some of them were pro-Islamic. Some of them were socialist Islamic. But there were some Marxist groups and leftist student groups. So there were all kind of different groups that were um, engaged. And my parents were in, in a kind of Marxist leftist student uh, group. And uh, my father came back when it was clear that the, that the that the Shah had that the Shah regime fell. He came back from the states um, to Iran, and then very quickly they realized that this hijacked revolution by Khomeini uh, was something that was very far from their beliefs and their dreams that they had. So um, they started even their engagement became much more serious because very soon um, there was ma massive arrests and um, they knew that what was being installed there was nothing that in any way <laughs> democratic or free. Massive protests spread around the country. That's when my parents met, decided to marry and became revolutionaries. In 1979, the Shah was overthrown, but the just and free society they were fighting for would soon become their biggest nightmare. So, um, yeah, so their engagement was suddenly under much more restrictions and harsher repercussions. And, and they had seen their friends being arrested, they, people going into the underground and needing to hide and change names and so on. And, um, yeah, and they were witnessing that firsthand about the forced hijab and uh, the, the restriction of the women's rights. And, yeah, so, yeah, they were, yeah, it just became very much more serious. And how did they end up getting arrested? You know, the reason I'm not talking about that so specifically also in the film is because that, because it is not so much for me. There's some parts that I really leave to our story. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, the things that I actually share in the film, that's the things that I, that I would like to share because I, this is the, the idea is always to explore when is the, you know, when, when does the specifics have like a more universal value. So, yeah, so, uh, the, yeah, they, they've just, like many others, they've been arrested because they were engaged in that Marxist leftist group. And they were, my mom was already pregnant and and they were um, engaged in this political activities in um, le distributing leaflets, in uh, helping each other, hiding people, trying to, yeah, engage against Khomeini. Gotcha. And then eventually the, the, the 
the, the Iranian regime, like for tens of thousands of other people, they came and found their names and, and then they arrested them. Well, we should talk a bit about the, the prison that uh, they were uh, sent to, Evan. Just to, uh, for people who, who don't know, just tell us a little bit about what this prison was for. So Evin prison was an, is a political prison that was already a political prison during the Shah era. It was, um, there is, I mean, I don't want to go too much into details, but there is a difference between like a dictatorial, I don't even know how to say dictatorial? that. Dictatorial? Like a dic- <laughs> dictatorial prison and an ideological prison. But so it was a prison already during the Shah and it was already a prison for political opponents and um, people the Shah persecuted because it was also a very autocratic di- dictatorship that was then. But then when Khomeini and the Islamic regime came to power, it became an ideological prison, meaning that the people who had were arrested, they were, because they were installing an Islamist uh, fundamentalist uh, ideology for them, um, everyone who was against them was not only against their um, belief systems, but like against God. So they, they believed that the person, that the person, the prisoners needed to be broken down and they had developed very, very horrible methods, uh, torture methods and um, oppression methods inside prison to break the people, break their belief systems. It went to so far that when people had to, were repeating three times that they're not Muslims or that that they are Marxists, that would mean death penalty. And yeah, and that they installed an entire my movie doesn't touch that subject, but of course I researched a lot about it, a system of tavab, meaning people who then had, uh, had, be- had, in order to save themselves from torture, they became traitors and they would like denounce the other prisoners. So it was an entire system of cruelty that was installed in, until 88, when then eventually these um, 10,000 or thousands of people got um, then um, murdered inside the prison. But it was a very, yeah, even during the 80s, there was mass shootings, people being hanged, there was sexual violence, there was, yeah, it was a, one of the coolest places, I guess. Well, it almost took you about 30 years for you to talk to your mom about uh, this prison. And I wondered, just uh, before you, you even had that conversation with her, how, how was your, if, if you can, if you don't mind discussing um, your relationship uh, with your mom growing up, but uh, was any of this, like, did she talk about her time in Iran at all? Like, what was your relationship like, I guess? I really honor my relationship to, to my mother, and that's why I keep a lot of our, the aspects personal. But the thing that I think what I'm trying to do with the movie is saying that the, the consequences of, um, of persecution and violence and torture and these atrocities often, lead, often target the most intimate spaces. And after all these nearly four and a half years of working on the film, being like the stepdaughter of a psychoanalyst who, um, where that is also his field of research, I would say that my mother did also talk about prison, even though she would probably do that implicitly, meaning her choices of, um, of work, her being a politician, her being choosing to be a psychologist who works with uh, the refugees, all of these actions talked about the experiences that she had actually had made in in prison and um yeah so that's so i think silence is a very complex <laughs> phenomena and often even the word silence doesn't doesn't pay uh, really yeah doesn't really cap i don't know how to say it but doesn't really mm, 
doesn't describe actually the dynamics of of what happens after there had been yeah, crimes and atrocities. Well, there was actually a line that stuck out for me. Uh, I think that she says, uh, the price of her wait, wanting to not think about the darkness of that time was you being left with the ghost of emotion and questions. And I wonder what that, that meant to you when you heard that. Yeah, I, um, yeah, you're referring to the interview that I have towards the end of the film. And uh, also she phrases it at just that she was creating a life where the most, the biggest motor to her became creating a future for my, me and herself and like safety and having food on the table and sending me to school and all these so that there was no space in actually dealing with the, with the suffering that she went through. But for me as a second generation, that meant that I needed to, these ghosts that she refers to, I needed to decipher her actions, her silence, her, the, 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 the things that were in, yeah, in between the lines. And I think I very early on, uh, like many children, realized that uh, there's something so painful that words somehow can't yeah, reach maybe the, the experience. So um, she's right that it's true. I, I knew, I mean, I met my father when I was nine years old and, um, and slowly got to know where he was and I slowly got to know what Evin was. And, but I think unconsciously I always knew that the reasons that we had to fled Iran were something unbearable, terrible and difficult. So so yeah, it's it's complex. I think unconsciously I probably knew a lot already and conscious and still it was not graspable and so the, the journey of the film or also what the the mission of the film somehow is that bringing light to that darkness or opening that door where you just had to yeah, decipher, but couldn't really capture really what what was behind it. You, you mentioned your dad. He he was very forthcoming. I found uh, discussing what he experienced and the friends that he lost. Did that surprise you? Um, in the no, my father and I always talked about. Like I said just before, um, when I later when I grew up, when I was sixteen and seventeen, and could grasp this idea of political persecution, my father very early on already talked to me about about his um, experiences and even to the extent that when I turned 18, he gave me his asylum request where there was all this explicit uh, descriptions of what had happened to him. So we had a very open and um, verbal relationship when it came to, to that. But something that with my father that is so interesting is that he was dealing a lot with this, this phenomenon of survivor's guilt meaning that he would talk, but he would avoid talking about what happened to him. He would talk about his friends. So the friends he lost, the friends that were killed, the friends that he could not, carrying on their yeah, their legacy. And so the scene that you're referring to in the movie is very symbolic because that's something he would always do, talking about the people who can, whose voices are, yeah, who cannot be heard anymore. Yeah. Well, you meet several people in the film and, and some of them, you know, kind of ask, challenge you about your quest to pursue this truth. At, and uh, it seems like you were about to give up, but I, you, you keep coming back to this. And I wonder what kept you going. Yeah. So so the thing I think the biggest 
challenge sometimes for the spectators to, and that's absolutely okay with me, but to see is that I am both the protagonist of the film and I am the um, director of the film, but the role as a director and the questions of the director are not always the same as the ones of the protagonist. So as a director, I had created that journey that it has a very, I would say, archaic dramatic structure of basically a heroine's or hero's journey of like really having these three acts going into uh, having a need, having a one, trying to find something out, meeting obstacles, meeting meeting inner obstacles as well as outer obstacles, and then eventually the death of this idea of the individual and this like born into the kind of more collective story. So, so this whole dramatic structure of the film was something that having worked as a dramatic advisor myself, being a playwright myself I, and, and an actress for the last 15 years, that's something that I very much studied and I, I, I trust this, uh, this dramatic arc. But um, then at the same time, it is a documentary and the things, and we meet obstacles and we meet these inner and outer obstacles so that, that then in fact all of these things did become true. I did meet people who were questioning my, my quest and did, did uh, make me insecure. And I, I realized that it wasn't anymore a dramatic uh, structure that I'm just following, but it became my life. And uh, so that there is nothing, there's nothing fictional in that sense that I met many moments and they are not, most of them are not even represented in the film, but over the, over the period of four and a half years uh, where I, I didn't want to go on anymore. I was scared. I was, um, it, I was, I had problems dealing with all the research material. Most of the reading was often so difficult for me that I felt, why did, do I not just focus on my life instead of digging up this painful and difficult past? But eventually the, 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 the whole idea of the film is that it's worth going down this road and it's worth going through these transformation processes. So they needed to be in the film as well. I'll stay on that for a minute. Cause I, I, I'm curious to know kind of when that, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, going on a quest or sorry, going on a journey and, um, you know, comparing it to, I guess your acting, uh, role, uh, per, role as well. And I wonder if you noticed that, that sort of in the process of filming, or was that something that you kind of discovered in editing? I don't know if you can speak to that, but... Yeah, absolutely, I can. No, no, the movie has been... I have been um, extremely diligently preparing the film, meaning that I had... I knew because I had to function in this double role, being, on one hand, the protagonist, finding out the things about my own personal life for the first time, and being the director who has the overview of the whole thing. I knew that... Uh, that everything needed to be extremely well prepared. Uh, the interviews needed to be prepared, but also I went to a development program beforehand in the in, in Gothenburg and Sweden, where over ten days I only discussed the questions of um, the dramatic structure of the documentary and even trying to see does it work as a um, can the storytelling because it's not an essay film in that sense it has a very clear dramatic structure is can that work when i know that i don't even know where i'll be taken so um meaning i don't know even sometimes didn't know what would be the next country i would travel to or who would give me the next cue or all of these things but still the idea of the film the structure of the film and the columns of storytelling they were clear beforehand and um, and then the parts in between, meaning what country were we going to, what conference is the next, all of these things, we had to be extremely open, um, open then, you know. Hmm. 
Well, you you interview a couple of young women who, like yourself, were children and have been in prison. And I just wondered, wondered it seems like you guys got along like gangbusters, like you really seem to hit it off. <laughs> and uh, like your old friends, kind of, you know, and I wonder just how much you how much in common you had with them. Yeah, it's so interesting because now I've been traveling for a year with the film and I, the movie's been shown in over 30 countries by now. And even last night I was on a panel with um, in Copenhagen. We just had the Danish premiere last night. And on the panel there was once again another girl who was also a psychologist, like many people in my film. <laughs> Why are so many and in she, psychothera- <laughs> psychotherapy? I, I was very fascinated by that. A lot of them enter into that field. That's very interesting. Yes, it is. It is very interesting. Um, I can tell you a little bit about it uh, in a second. I just just finished that thought sure. about why there's so much um, similarities between that second generation. Um, uh, yeah, all of these. I, in the movie, I, there are three women I meet, but I met many more. And and now in the last year, I've met many many women. Even in Itfa at the Itfa Film Festival in Amsterdam, in the audience, there was a girl who was only born in Evin only three months um, before me. Hmm. So that happens so much. And there, every time we spend time together, there seems to be like a sisterhood or brotherhood <laughs> or like a sibling energy to it. Because, um, And I don't even think that is so surprising because if you look even at, at the second generation of the Shoah or the second generation of child survivors of the, after the Shoah, and there, there are gatherings, there are meetings and growing up with parents who have been persecuted, who have experienced an extreme, yeah, vulnerable and destroy, basically a try, trial to destroy, destroy their, their inner self. I think there's something, mm, but not only that, also growing up with parents that have a very strong ethical uh, vision and behavior. There is a lot of things that, um, yeah, that I think that there is a lot of similarities um, yeah, and so this was also something that I was thought was worth exploring and looking at it from different points of view. Like, for example, we have Shora, who became an anthropologist, and she's so so eloquent and verbal about um, the us as a second generation trying to make up for the defeat that our parents um, went through. I traveled back to Paris to meet brave Shora, where she was working on a documentary on the massacre of 1988. I think there's so much guilt. I, I think like one of the key like to the to the to the anger, to the reluctance to talk is the guilt. Is the guilt. Um, because they survived. Because they lost <laughs> the revolution. You know? And uh, and they they're they're all the time they're thinking of how could have things been different. But then there is the other the other girl who talks about her dreams when uh, how trauma talks through tra- talks through her dreams, in the same way as it does for me. And then there is another girl where we just talk like in a kind of humorous way about the consequences or behavioral consequences on our relationships. So I was trying to, with all of these different uh, women I meet in, in of the second generation, try to shed a light of different aspects of the consequences of the trauma for the second generation. Well, have, have the people uh, in the film, your parents, uh, the people uh, who, who attended the conferences, have they been able to see it? And what are their thoughts? The, the movie has been traveling a lot and it's been... Um, um, the great thing is that 
they they are still the minority, which I enjoy in the sense because not because they know the story, and I'm always happy when I show the films, the film in countries where the, it touches people who have uh, an absolutely different uh, back, cultural background, or uh, yeah, and so so that's always what is really meaningful for me. But then also, of course, uh, the movie means a lot to the people whose actual story that is, and um, and. They live with impunity. The perpetrators are still in power. Uh, the, the crimes that they suffered have not been in any way dealt with. And um, most of them cannot go back to Iran. So it's not just a work of memorialization or memories. It's, some, it's something that is ongoing until today. So, so they are grateful that, that these means through which somehow these experiences can be communicated that they uh, that they are being communicated. So I've just experienced a lot of support and and gratefulness for that the film exists. Well, you mentioned the perpetrators are still in power, and obviously Iran's been in the news a lot recently. And uh, I wondered what you thought, uh, what was going through your mind when uh, the, you know Qasem Soleimani was killed and the commercial airplane was down by the Iranian military. I wonder what what you were thinking about when when that was going on. Yeah, and even before the the, the the killing of Soleimani, just then the November protests, it was once again there was these uh, this uproar, the, the, this 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 demonstrations in the streets, and the the gas prices that went up, and it was not the students demonstrating, but actually the simple people. And um, so hearing that in the news, knowing that there is such an that 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 yeah that there is still the same struggle going on and even the methods of the suppression of that uh, protests and all of these they're they then continuation of what happened in the eighties and very specifically that means that the justice the minister of justice is one of the heads of the was one of the judges of the death commission in eighty eight where the, which was the massacre so people are in high ranking uh, positions until today and um and the system is built on on lies and deceit is that the word mm-hmm. um deception yeah that's right <laughs> is that yeah. the right word yeah so so th- that regime is built on that and it's continuing and it's the same strategies and when i see that it it's it, i can't say it shocks me it just makes me sad for the people who are living under these circumstances and i just hope that one day that justice will will uh, win. No. Yeah. Well, listen, Miriam, it was really great talking with you, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> and that's the podcast. Thanks to Miriam Zuri and the Human Rights Watch International Film Festival. If you liked what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, write to us at ondocs.tvo.org or follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. This episode of On Docs was produced by Matthew O'Mara and me. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening. Mm-hmm.